We are in Deuteronomy chapter 4, powering along. We're going to start in verse 32 today, last week. Uh, just again, for orientation's sake, we looked at the importance of the word, the continuing importance of the word. By the way, somebody lose a spoon. I'm a, come in, there's like a spoon on the podium. If you lost a spoon here. I know. Oh, okay. Pretty cool spoon. Feet on the word. In keeping with the importance of the word, last time we saw, picking up in, in verses 15 and following there of chapter 4, just how idolatry is forbidden. Why? Because there is only one God. God desire, desires for you that you would desire Him because that is the best thing for you. Uh, that you rebel and go after things that do not satisfy uh, after God has provided all that He has provided um, is, is not good. God is a jealous God, verse 24. He's a consuming fire. But He's not jealous in the ugly way that we think of jealousy. He's jealous in a good way. Uh, again, because He knows that what you are doing is to your detriment. That you are not giving glory to the one who deserves glory. And that is him. Um, you are improperly oriented. And it doesn't end there. You know, He goes on to describe what's going to happen if they choose to follow after idolatry. And it's not good. But at the very end, starting in verse 29, is the but. Even though you do this... But things can be different. And why can things be different is, is because God is lavish in His grace. He is abundant in His grace. He is a merciful God, verse 31 says, if they turn back to Him. So this is, this is Moses, again, exhorting them just before they're going to go into the promised land. This is the retelling to the Israel, the next generation, okay, if you want to make a Star Trek episode out of it, this is Israel, the next generation, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land after uh, all the old folks have died off. We're picking up in verse 32, and really 32 to 40 kind of just amplifies why idolatry is just dopey. And that is because God is extraordinary. God is extraordinary. Who is this God? Um, and so uh, Moses begins to exhort and encourage them. Uh, would, let's see, uh, Caleb, would you read uh, 32 through 34, please? Mm-hmm. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth. And as from one end of the earth, one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of 
another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Yep, right there. Okay, so point point of astonishment almost. Okay, think let's Moses is saying let's let's think about this. Ask, go ahead and ask, ask around. Ask all the way back to the creation in time. From then all the way until now. Ask, go ahead. Ask the ages past. Ask geographically. East to west. Did any anybody, any man created on the earth from one end of heaven to the other? Ask. Go ahead and ask. Has God ever done something like this? Has God ever spoken to a people directly out of cloud and fire? No. Other than other than them. No. Okay, good. Good, thank you. And what did what extraordinary thing did he do for Israel? Okay, how does how does I love how he describes this in the words here of verse 34. You know, imagine the the Jews in Germany. Okay, they've gone in, they're living there, everything's great. How is God going to separate a people to Himself? Well, He does, in that case, through evil means, through very evil means of concentration camps and the like. How did God separate a people, separate Israel out of Egypt? Huh? Yeah. But, but again, was it all good? No, it wasn't all good. I mean, Pharaoh became jealous of this people and concerned and paranoid about this growing people up in Goshen. So I think we should enslave them. Okay, we're going to put them in their place. We're going to put them down, let them know who's boss, us, not them. Um, and and by, by what means? By trials. Uh, the, the list... You know, it's really an extraordinary list. Trials, signs, wonders, war, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did before your eyes. Before your eyes, you saw this. Let me pause here for just a minute. 
He says to ask around. Ask essentially for testimonies. And it's rhetorical because there's nobody. There's, there's nobody. But how important is verbal testimony? testimony is very important because of although you know witnesses that God has us have you must have a few other witnesses besides yourself who can affirm like verbally affirm what has happened or what they saw I think about how much comfort comes from when we think of how Christ suffered and experienced everything that could be experienced and when we think about that and remember that we get comfort from that Can somebody be convicted on verbal testimony alone? Without any evidence? Are you saying without any evidence? Yeah, well, the evidence is you and you and you all saw her uh, take the, the bracelet. And there is, nobody can find the bracelet, but you all saw her do it. And you, what, what, first of all, what would impugn your testimony? What would, what would invalidate your testimony? We weren't known to be untrustworthy. Okay, good. If, if it could be shown by the lawyer who's defending her that you, you, guys, you guys are prone to lying or criminal activity. That your testimony is unreliable. Okay. What else would impugn your testimony? Our stories don't match up. Okay. Yeah, you guys are all telling something completely different. And there is no way to reconcile these things. You go, these, they don't even match up. They don't have to be perfect. And maybe from different perspectives, you go, okay, I get the full picture, even though they're different stories. You go, okay, I can reconcile them that way, but you're talking about different dates and times and your stories don't match. Is verbal testimony as important today as it was 200 years ago or 300 years ago? Yes. Today, what, what trumps testimony? Your spirit. Not in, not in today's courts, they don't. Oh, we're talking about court. Boom. I think <laughs> the, this most recent situation with the Supreme Court, and I think that, that verbal testimony almost trumped everything else. I mean, it was, it was given so much... Okay. Interesting. And you know, interesting that certain people's testimony is higher than other people's testimony. But most of the time, in most cases, other than something as sensationalized and politicized as that mess was, it's science. You know, DNA evidence or 
you know, some kind of you know, hard evidence there. But back in the day, somebody's word was sufficient. Again, on two witnesses there. And uh, kind of a, a, a beautiful uh, inclusion that John makes in his gospel. Uh, he says, uh, at the crucifixion of Christ, he says, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. Who's he speaking of? Himself. Himself. He was there. He was there with Mary at the cross. Just before that, Jesus says, Mother, behold your son, son, behold your mother. To essentially give charge of Mary to John. It's the firstborn son. That was his responsibility. But John says he saw them put the spear in his side. And my testimony is true. And I tell you that you may believe. There's a testimony of one witness but we would also have the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us to affirm that this is a true statement. Many people today will look at the testimony of Scripture, which is the testimony of men, and go, nothing. Got nothing for it. Give me the proof. Show me the money. Tragic. But here, God even calls out to them through Moses, your eyes have seen this. Okay, you are witnesses. You have seen this. Okay, they're going to have a responsibility to pass this on to their children. He's already said that uh, to them before. But extraordinary, this God who has extracted a people from another people. And we go, why? Why did he do this? And we get to the, the next verse. Um, let's see, 35 to 40, Sarah, would you read 35 to 40, please? Or 35 to 39, I'm sorry. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, he chose their offspring after them, and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today, and lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Man, that's, that's where the orchestra really picks up. And the lights just... What, a, what an awesome statement. Verse 35, why did God do this? Why did God draw Israel out of Egypt? You might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Okay. That you might know. That you might know. Fact absolute that you might know that your that your knees may not quaver that 
they may not tremble, that, they, that you would have a certainty that you might know. Know what? That the Lord is God. That the Lord, Yahweh, He is God. That the Lord, He is God. Exclusively. There is no other. I mean, this is important. This is, this is like fundamental to all of existence. We can know that there is a God and that he is the God. There is no other. There is no other. There can, even logically, there cannot be two omnipotent beings. That's, that's self-refuting. How can, well, who, who's going to take who in a grudge match? You know, if they're both omnipotent. They both can't be omnipotent. One hat has to be lesser than the other. Well, where'd they come from? Who created these guys? Have they always been? Well, if something created either one of them, there's something greater than both of them. So, again, to have... Two omnipotent beings is going to just put you into a, a logical corner. But God has done this that these people might know. Uh, God's intentions here for them are beautiful. You know, I spoke to you. Okay? I, I spoke to you. Why, do, why am I speaking to you now? Why am I speaking to you now? Yeah, I'm like really hoping that somebody's going to listen. You know, I'm hoping that you guys are going to hear and, and learn. And that's, that's why we communicate. You know, we were, we were talking about conversations uh, the other day at, at dinner. You know, why, why do I ask you questions, you know, in, in conversation? Uh, well, I may be superficial. It's because that's what I'm supposed to do. Or I may really care about you. I want to know who you are. And so I ask you questions. So I have a conversation with you to learn about you. Okay, God, God already knows everything there is to know. So he is revealing himself to us. I'm, I'm speaking to you, he says, that you may know me, that there is no other besides me. Out of heaven you heard my voice, you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. That he might, raccoons are back. That he might discipline you. Connotation. How, does, how do you take that? That he might discipline you.
dis- we, we hear the word discipline and we immediately go, downer, Debbie Downer. You know, I, I think of discipline as a, as a military guy. I go, man, I, I, I gotta have discipline flying the airplane. As a, uh, an athlete, athlete has to have discipline. You know, I, I, I can't play whatever position I want in the outfield. You know, the guy in the dugout's going like this. Like the, moving, moving the outfielders around to be in the spot that they are supposed to be. They have to have discipline to be in that spot. They can't be chasing butterflies. They can't check out. Discipline's good. Hear his voice that, that you might be disciplined of him. Man, he, he, wow. We heard his words. Do we have his words? Do we have the word of God? Do you know it's the word of God? How did they know it was the word of God? They heard it out of the fire again. You go, do you really need something else to validate that? Spielberg isn't going to do that. It, it, it. And they covered their ears. And they we don't want to hear it. Yeah. Um, I, I would have to go back and look. I would be speaking off the cuff. Uh, I, I know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I won't even go there. I'll find out uh, for you. Now, what did God? What did God do? Look at verse 37. He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. Why did God choose Abraham? Well, then Abraham can go, hey, look at me, because I was faithful. Yes, because. Because. Jacob and Esau. When did God choose Jacob or Esau? Before the foundation of the world. We get it in the womb. You know, yeah, literally, really. It was manifest, though, to them in the womb that the younger would serve, or the older would serve the younger. Isaac or Ishmael, God's choice, no, not, not by Hagar, but by Rebecca. God's choice. God chose them. That's what he says. He extended his love to them because they were lovely. No, because he's gracious and he loves his creatures he lavished love upon them before they could love him back he picked them grace he's picked the stubborn nation and pulled them out of egypt completely by his own power they did zippo nothing except complain and grouse along the way did God really say, how do we know? <laughs> Just wait and see. You know. And they saw the signs and wonders. 
He drove out nations greater and mightier than you. Took care of Egypt, Og, Sion, there on the east side of the Jordan River, already read about those guys, driving them out. To do what? To bring you in and give you the land for, your, for an inheritance as it is this day. Here's the big idea in verse 39. Okay, the big idea. Know therefore today, lay it to your heart, that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. There is no other God. We're going to cover this again next week. God is and there is no other. God is and there is no other. Physicists, scientists, philosophers are all trying to posit a universe without God and it just sounds silly. gravity you know okay if, if, if I pull on this table and it moves you go I know I know why it moved okay everybody here believe in gravity okay great what is it How come? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing there. I mean, even... Then why are we not flying off the face of the earth? There's, there's no... It's like, like magnetic attraction. Okay, yeah, I can sprinkle iron shavings on there, and I can go, okay, I can see the, the lines that are pulling this, but there's, there's nothing there. Well, there, there is. There's, there's actually electricity going there. But gravity... You can't see it. I can't. I can. But we know... We, I can't see air either. But is there something really there? Mm-hmm. Yes. There's molecules. I can't see them. They're so small. I'm breathing them, <gasps> thankfully. But what's holding the moon in the... Around, in orbit around the earth. What? And where is it hanging? On nothing. Are we, it, it just, it's just hanging there. All, all of these things are in place because of gravitational attraction in nothing. God is, there is no other. And therefore... Obey him. Therefore, verse 40, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. Why? Because he's worthy. 
I mean, if he made us, he knows how we function. And so do what he says. That it may go well with you and with your children after you. And that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Wow. For, for Israel, this should blow their minds. Who are we? I mean, these people of all people could look back over 40 years and further back into the time of slavery, but they could see what happened when their own parents rebelled against the living God. Oh, man, why would we do that again? You know, Korah's rebellion, Dathan's rebellion. Oh, you know, that when we rejected God's guidance to go in and take the land, we sent spies, and they went, oh, we can't do it. And God was angry because of their lack of faith in him. This ought to be their delight. So really, man, what a, what a glorious depiction of the living God in 32 through 40, the God that we serve here together. Um, I'm, this, verses 41 to 43, kind of an odd insert here. As he goes back to talk about the cities of refuge. Before I get into that, anybody have anything else say, uh, on that first section that we talked about so far? I can't help but wonder if Moses was a little resentful about all this. Listen, you people, I hit a rock with a stick, and I am exiled from the promised land, but you, you heathens, you get to go. But I was upset at you. I, 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 I try not to read that into it. Okay, cities of refuge. We'll just cover, the, cover this briefly. Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan that the manslayer might flee there. Anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally without being enmity with him in the past, he may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness of the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. Okay. Cities of refuge. It's going to be three on the east side of the Jordan River, three on the west side of the Jordan River. What are they for? If you accidentally kill your neighbor. Okay. Un, like unintentional, not maliciously intended at all. Okay, good. Number 16 goes into great detail on how to determine if uh, uh, murder was intentional. Excuse me, numbers 35. Numbers 35, 9 to 15. Uh, how, how you can tell if, if murder was intentional as opposed to completely unintentional. Um, murder. Big deal, not big deal. Big deal. Very big deal. Why would a person have to flee to a city of refuge. 
<laughs> yes, to escape vengeance. Because if somebody was murdered and it was known, that man's life is forfeit. Why? Okay, where's that come from? It does. It, it goes. It, it's, it precedes the law, so that means it is. It is even before the law. It is. It is one of the very first commandments that God gives to Noah coming off of the ark. If if any man takes the life of a man, his life is forfeit. Because in the image of God, I created you. In the image of God, I created that male and female. And really what God says in Genesis chapter 9 is that you are desecrating God's image. So significant is a human being compared to a a mole or a rat or anything. Anything, dolphins. And even if it's unintentional, your life is still forfeit. Unless you make it to a city of refuge. The person would be justified in taking your life because you killed that person. But God has made a provision of mercy. Intention does matter. Intention does matter. There. Um, it doesn't absolve the gravity of murder, of, of one taking the life of another. There. And so we see this whole principle kind of fleshed out in Western jurisprudence, in Western legal systems, where there are times where killing another person is justifiable. And other times it is not. But if we erase the image of God in man, then who's to say? Try and get an unbeliever if you're discussing philosophical issues, capital punishment and the like, how murder is a bad thing. What would they argue? They would argue from the point of uh, just, I know it's bad for society and it's not how a society will hold together and if and if one individual believes that murder is okay, then that society will fall apart. And that's not beneficial to everybody. Okay. You are free to do anything that you want until it starts affecting that other person. You know, this whole personal autonomy little thing where the planets orbit around your nugget there is great until I start getting into Sue's face. So that would that would take her personal autonomy, and, and I can't do that. And I would say, why? 
Where, where does it say personal autonomy is the most important thing, the most important law? I, I thought if, if Darwin was there, it's survival of the fittest. I got a bigger gun than Sue's got. <laughs> I take Sue's stuff. Anarchy. You, you, you got no law. God's word provides us a foundation and a beauty for both justice and mercy in there, in the cities of refuge. So again, it's kind of odd that it's stuck in there. Um, but this is right on the cusp of Moses about, Moses getting ready to really lay the law on them. The beauty and the wonder of the law. And what you see is kind of a preparation for that in verses 44 to 49. Uh, we got some weird names in there, so I'll, I'll plow through this. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. Okay, this is almost like a, an insert here. I don't, Moses could have written this, yes, but it's, it's like a transitional passage here from what he has been saying like things are about to change here. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor in the land of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Syrian, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, that would be the Dead Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah. Okay. So, essentially what... what the author here could be Moses. Again, it could be Joshua later. He's giving us a, a almost a reiteration of what we've covered up to this point here. Um, of what God has done, what he has provided. Um, really, these are the testimonies. There's no obstruction. You, you people, you people... Here's Moses' finger. You people should understand there is no obstruction to you hearing the word. And there is no obstruction to you doing the word. Okay, God is essentially leading you and taking care of all of this for you. Everything should happen properly. So Moses, in, in chapter 5 and verse 1, summons all Israel and says to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Okay, who's he speaking to? Israel. How much of it? Is that possible? Sure. Word gets around. Okay. How many people were there? At least two. (laughs) (laughs) 
million? A lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Okay. We have we have six hundred thousand coming out. Six hundred thousand men. Okay, women would be another six hundred thousand children. On top of that, you're talking two million. That was coming out of Egypt. Bunch died in the wilderness. Moms and dads probably having babies there as well. Okay, and so essentially, let's say the population stayed static. You're talking a million and a half people. Can one guy at once communicate to a million and a half people? Probably not. I wouldn't think so. Okay, could he? Maybe. Amphitheaters, natural amphitheaters and the like, God's provision for his voice there for people to hear plainly possible it's immaterial though okay how, how did it happen I don't know but all Israel heard all Israel heard this um, perhaps he spoke to the leadership and the leadership took it the word of God was communicated plainly to them okay what does Moses command them to do? And I think, I think this is important. This is important for us here in, in Sunday school. It's, it's important for our lives as far as the word of God is concerned. What is the first thing that has to happen? Okay, first thing that has to happen is I have to hear it. Okay, so in this methodology, the first thing that has to happen is I have to hear it. How do we hear the word of God today? Read it. Read it. Okay, hopefully your face is in it. Okay, from, from pastors and teachers. TV, podcasts, radio. Okay, other media. Other believers. Friends, sons and daughters, speaking to the parents, parents speaking to the children. Okay, let it not be thought that only parents can teach the children. Children can teach the parents as they share what God is doing in their lives. That can be a great encouragement. But I have to hear. What did Israel have? Did Israel have the written word? You know, not at that time they didn't. Moses obviously documented the law for them on scrolls there. They did have the etched commandments in the Ark of the Covenant. But they didn't have their phone to pull up their translation. Which Hebrew text do you like to use? I don't know. So they had to hear. They had to hear. And that, that's going to come into play even more in chapter 6. Okay. So I hear it. What's next? There's got to be learning. Okay. Not only do I hear it. How is learning different from hearing? something and still 
not understand it. Were you going to say something? Yeah. I mean, how often do you hear something and you know, it just bounces? It's hysterical to teach students up at the base because you know, I don't like to see them fail. And if he's going to fly a particular instrument approach through the weather, I'm going to go in detail through that approach, what he needs to do every step of the way. Do you understand what you need to do? Yes. And he walks out of the briefing room, we go into the simulator, and I, I tell him afterwards, I said, there's like a force field on the doorway. As soon as you walk through that doorway, it's all stripped off. Everything I told him, it's laying on the floor. Because he gets into the simulator, it's like I never talked to him. He heard it. Did he learn it? No. The learning didn't happen. How do I know the learning didn't happen? Because he ain't doing it. I, I don't think he's resistant. I think he would like to if he could. But it didn't happen. Ultimately, if I hear something and I do internalize it, it's going to flesh out. If I think it was important it's going to flesh out in the doing. I'm going to do. If I don't do, what is that showing? Maybe I don't care. Go, got it, thanks. I'm going over here. Had a student like that here recently. Okay, not, not good. What else might it, what, David, what did you say? Rebellion. Okay, there, there may be rebellion. <clears throat> Faith is, what is James saying, dead? Or at least dormant? Yeah. Is, is my not doing always a corruption of my heart? Is laziness considered a corruption? Yeah, laziness is a corruption. Have you ever forgotten something? All the time. Did your mom or dad ever tell you when you were a kid to do something and you plumb forgot? You forgot? That's why there's so many exhortations in scripture to remember. Hmm, golly. God, he knows we're but dust. Thank you, Lord. So yes, a lot of times there is rebellion. There's a stubbornness of heart. Sometimes it's just we're, we're dust. So do, 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 do. We're going to get into this next week because I'm, going to, I'm, I'm running out of time here. And I'm going to challenge you guys to do something because this is important. There are a lot of things that get in, get in the way here. You know, first of all, we don't listen. We don't read. We don't study. We don't care. And that which we lead, read, we're perhaps just reading because... Okay, I'm trying to get through the Bible in a year, and I've, I've filled my square. Ka-ching. And I walk out the door, and I might not, might, might just as well not have read it, because I sure didn't learn it. 
it sure is having absolutely no effect on my life today because it scraped off on the doorway as I walked through the door, just laying on the floor. And then the things that get in the way of my doing it is my own sin. I want to do something else. Sometimes it's the limitations and I, I do forget. Next week, we are going to take this idea here and it says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain. Out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time, to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain. He said, boom, we're going to stop there. God made a covenant with Israel. God has made a covenant with us. There's a passage I put down on the back side of your sheet of paper there, Hebrews chapter 3 through chapter 4, I believe. 3, 1 to 4, 11. I want you to look at that and read that and compare it and contrast it with what Israel has gone through here in light of hearing, learning, doing. And we are going to kind of Talk about why is Israel's example so relevant to Christians today? What can, we, what can we learn from this that we might do what God would have us to do in the church? So we may spend all of, the, all of our time in this passage because it is, it is there are, a lot of knots and complexities in this passage where you go, Ooh, can we, well, how come, what about? And I don't want us to get lost in this. And I really desire that we, as we read in Deuteronomy, the law that so many dismiss, that we might see the richness of our God, the glory of our God, and His, His extraordinary love for us uh, in His Word here, that we would still have Deuteronomy as relevant and important to us today. All right, questions, thoughts, comments? Please. So this is, this, he is recalling Mount Sinai, right? Yes. Okay. So here in verse 5 it says, For you were afraid... Because 